Okay, a brief recap. Wow. Brief recap from last time. I think by now you mostly all know the story. After 70 years of exile, the people of both Israel and Judah were allowed to finally return to their lands. Anyone who wanted to return was allowed to return, but as we know, and we'll see later, not everybody did. The land that they returned to was mostly deserted. It had scarcely been worked on during the exile. The Babylonians had left only the weak, the infirm, the old, and the disabled in in the place. The major towns had been destroyed, and the people had been reduced to mostly subsistence living. To the north of Jerusalem, the kingdom of Israel, the blue part on the map, They had been forcibly removed and taken away to Assyria that was later absorbed into Babylon. And the land around there had been settled by people taken from other lands who were in the same situation. They were now sitting there hoping to settle. So the returnees from Babylon were not exactly returning to paradise. But there were some other factors as well here. While they were in captivity, the Babylonian Empire had been forcibly taken over by the Persian Empire under Cyrus. Cyrus only ruled for a couple of years before he died and was eventually succeeded by his son-in-law, Darius. Cyrus inherited a complete political mess when he overthrew the Babylonian Empire. But it is a matter of record that Cyrus allowed all his displaced subjects to return to wherever it was that they had come from. And it especially made sense for him to allow Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah to return to home. That would create a buffer state between Babylon and the Egyptians, their sworn enemies. So allowing them to return home and to rebuild the cities and their fortifications made some sense. So Israel and Judah returned, and they immediately started by rebuilding the altar of the Lord. Ezra 3.3 says that they rebuilt it, and they began the sacrifices on it in spite of their fear of the peoples around them. And so they began, and so they began work on the temple itself. The problem is that dating Ezra and Nehemiah, and many of the Old Testament books can be quite difficult for two reasons. One, the authors often, as in this case, give a complete historical chronology of events. They tell you everything that happened. When they're finished with it, they go back to the beginning and they start filling in the details. The other problem is that many of the kings were named after their ancestors as we will see here. And so the chronology, which means looking at what happened when, actually becomes quite difficult. So we'll try and look at this sensibly. So if you have your Bible, turn to Ezra chapter 4. We'll start at the beginning. 
The first two verses. When the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the exiles were building a temple for the Lord, the God of Israel, they came to Zerubbabel and to the heads of the families and said, Let us help you build, because like you, we seek your God and have been sacrificing since the time of Eshahadan, the king of Assyria, who brought us here. Now it's interesting to note that at that stage they still thought of themselves as exiles. They'd only been back for two years, about that. They hadn't actually established themselves, unlike the inhabitants to the north. Now I'm going to digress a moment to explain a little bit about that, because it's important. About 130 years before this, the northern king of kingdom of Israel, the blue part on the map I showed you earlier, as opposed to Judah, with its kingdom of Jerusalem, they had rebelled against the kingdom of Assyria. They were defeated. The inhabitants of Israel had been taken off into Assyrian captivity. And as we know, Assyria was later swallowed by the Babylonian Empire. But before this, the Assyrians had done exactly what most kingdoms at that time had done. They had taken the inhabitants away and scattered them amongst the other nations. And they had taken inhabitants from other countries and transplanted them into Israel. If you're taking notes, 2 Kings 17, 24 to 29 tells you that story. I'm not going to read the whole thing for you. But essentially, Assyria conquered the northern kingdom, took the population away, transplanted the people from other conquered nations, and put them into the land around the capital city of Samaria and its environment. But they were immediately faced with large quantities of lions prowling around there. So they wrote to the Assyrian king, and they told him God wasn't happy with them around there. What did he intend to do about it? So the king of Assyria sent back one of the Israelite priests to teach them the ways of God. And verse 29 says, Nevertheless, each national group made its own gods in the several towns where they had settled, and they set them up in the shrines the people of Samaria had made at the high places. Now, this is important. Let's see if you're still awake. What do you call a person who lives around the city of Samaria? A Samaritan. You are awake. Now, what do we know about the Samaritans? Well, we've just learned something. In technical terms, theirs was what's called a syncretic religion. what we call Woolworth's theology. In other words, pick and mix. You know how that works, don't you? I take the things I like, I leave the things I don't like. So if we want to put that into a modern context, I'll start with Christianity, I'll take a little bit of Hinduism, perhaps take a bit of spirituality, spiritualism, bit of this, a bit of that, until I've got something which I like. So that is where the Samaritans were at the time. 
So these enemies of Judah and Benjamin came to the people and they said, <clears throat> Hey guys, we want to work with you. We want to build this building for you. I mean, we've been worshipping the same God as you for years anyway. That makes it okay, doesn't it? Let's look at the response they got. Verse 3. But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the rest of the heads of the families of Israel answered, You have no part with us in building the temple to our God. We alone will build it for the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, commanded us. So the answer to the Samaritans was fairly straightforward. No, go away. But why so harsh? Why didn't they accept the offer of help with open arms? Would have speeded up building the temple. It would have gained them some allies. All sorts of reasons why they could have. But the answer partially lies in the place they had just returned from. See, Babylon was the center of the world at that time, as far as the empire was concerned. At its height, the Persian Empire stretched from the borders of Greece to the banks of the Indus River in India. Even by today's standards, that's quite impressive. The Persians continued the Babylonian idea of bringing to the capital noblemen from every conquered land and learning their wisdom, learning their discoveries. Truth be told, they made pretty good hostages too. But while they were free to continue their religion, in fact, they were actually encouraged to do so, they also had to pay homage to the Babylonian and the Persian gods. The state was forcing their unique relationship with God to become a syncretic religion. Some of this and some of that. So here's the issue. The very reason that Israel and Judah had been carried into captivity to begin with was that they had worshipped foreign gods themselves while still paying lip service to the one true God. They were guilty of Woolworth's theology themselves. While they still called themselves Jews, while they enjoyed all the ritual and the symbology and everything else that went with it, they still looked to the gods around them of the foreign nations. But 70 years of exile in a foreign land of being forced to pay lip service to foreign gods focused their minds on the one true God. Their captivity reminded them of the years of fighting, bloodshed and slaughter which they had had to endure before they themselves had been carried away. Years that God had spent trying to get them to come to their senses, put away their foreign gods and come to him. What did they learn? Well, they learned that compromise leads to judgment from God. 
In the past, whenever people have wanted something, no, really wanted something, more than they wanted to worship God, God has given it to them as a judgment. One example, just one example. The people came to Saul, beg your pardon, they came to Samuel, and they said, we want a king. And Samuel said to them, you've already got God. No, really, we want a king. Samuel went to God and said, you see what the people want? What do I do? And God said to them, if they want a king, tell them they can have a king, but they'll be sorry. He will tax them. He will enslave them. He will lead them into wars and be defeated. They wanted a king. They got Saul. They also got David, but first they got Saul. In so many cases in the Bible, if you want something more than you want God, God gives it to you as a judgment. If that's what you really want, you'll have it. What else did they learn? Well, only in captivity did they recognize their sin. There they repented. There they chose to follow God alone. They learned that sometimes God uses unsaved people to do his work just as much as he uses saved people. And I think this is fairly important. They also learned all opposition teaches us something. In Israel's case, it was that God is patient, but sometimes his patience runs out. If they had put aside their false gods, if they had submitted to him, they would never have been carried away into captivity and shame. So these returnees, starting to build the temple, they were not convinced the Samaritans wanted to help for the right motives. To them, the temple was not just an impressive building. It was a symbol of God dwelling amongst his people. They had reasons for not wanting idol worshippers to work on God's house. This gets a little technical, so I'll try and go through this fairly quickly. During the time of captivity, many of the rabbis got together and they discussed at length in their scriptures the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. They wrote down their commentaries in books called Targum. These commentaries were written in Aramaic so that anybody could read it, whether you were a Hebrew reading Jew or an Aramaic person who had been born in captivity and didn't speak Hebrew particularly well. They did this so that everyone could understand them. But in addition to these paraphrases, there were lengthy discussions on what each passage could mean and the implications of those passages. One passage they took to heart was Deuteronomy chapter 22, verses 9 to 11. Strange, I know. I had to study this a little while ago. Do not plant two kinds of seed in your vineyard. If you do, not only the crops you plant, but also the fruit of the vineyard will be defiled. Do not plow with ox 
and donkey yoked together? Do not wear clothes of wool and linen woven together. And my first thought was, what has that got to do with anything? Especially as when you read it in the original, in Deuteronomy there, it's right in the middle of nowhere. It's got absolutely nothing to do with anything else. But the application of this passage was discussed at some length in the Targum. Now remember that these Targums had just been written. The general consensus was that there was a principle at work here. Things set aside for one use should not be used for another use. In God's eyes, there should always be a distinction between the clean and the unclean, the consecrated and the unconsecrated. If they were to plant a vineyard, for example, in this case, the temple, to use the analogy, with two kinds of seed, clean and unclean, then the fruit of the vineyard, the temple, would be defiled too. And the prophet Haggai was to warn them of this just a few years later when they started building the temple in earnest. So they had learned the lesson about compromise. In standing for God, they were prepared to take the consequences and to trust the word of the Lord. But the Samaritans were not happy about this. The returnees were about to learn another lesson. And I think it's a lesson that we will find ourselves sometime. Refusal to compromise brings hostility from others. So, we look at verses 4 and 5. When the peoples around them set out to discourage, then the people around them set out to discourage the people of Judah, to make them afraid to go on building. They hired counselors to work against them and to frustrate their plans during the entire reign of Cyrus, king of Persia, down to the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Time passed. Cyrus was succeeded by his son Cambyses who on his premature premature death was succeeded by Darius. Now Darius had a son called Xerxes. He had a son called Artaxerxes. Confusing. But history tells us that between the death of Cyrus and Xerxes was about 15 years. That's a long time to face opposition. So verse 6 says, At the beginning of the reign of Xerxes, the Samaritans, the enemies, lodged an accusation against the people of Judah and Jerusalem. And in the days of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Bishlam, Midredath, Tabil, and the rest of his associates wrote a letter to Artaxerxes. The letter was written in the Aramaic script and in the Aramaic language. I have got a volunteer to read the letter. Well, it's not actually um, in Aramaic, because that would be a bit difficult. Um, Rehum, the commanding officer, and Shimshe, the secretary, together with the rest of their associates, the judges, officials, over the men of Tripolis, Persia, Erek, Babylon, the Elamites of Susa, and the other people whom the great and honourable Asher and Ipel deported and settled in the city of Samaria and elsewhere in the trans-Euphrates. This is a copy of the letter they sent him. 
to King Artaxerxes, from your servants, to the men of Trans-Euphrates. The king should know that the Jews who came up to us from you have gone to Jerusalem and are rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. They are restoring the walls and repairing the foundations. Furthermore, the king should know that if this city is built and its walls are restored, no more taxes, tribute or duty will be paid and the royal revenues will suffer. Now since we are not under obligation to the palace and it was not proper for us to see the king dishonoured, we are sending this message to inform the king so that a search may be made of the archives of your predecessors. In these records you will find that this city is a rebellious city, troublesome to kings and provinces, a place of rebellion from ancient times. That is why this city was destroyed. We inform the king that if this city is rebuilt and its walls are restored, you will be left with nothing in trans-Euphrates. Subtle, weren't they? Now let's see what the king replied. The king sent this reply. To Rahab, the commanding officer, Shimshai, the secretary, and the rest of their associates living in Samaria and elsewhere in Trans-Euphrates. Greetings. The letter you sent us has been read and translated in my presence. I issued an order and a search was made and it was found that this city indeed has a long history of revolt against kings and has been a place of rebellion and sedition. Jerusalem has had powerful kings ruling over the whole of Trans-Euphrates and taxes, tribute and duty were paid to them. Now, issue an order to these men to stop work so that this city will not be rebuilt until I so order. Be careful not to neglect this matter. Why let this threat grow to the detriment of the royal interests? So a search of the royal archives was made. But what was he worried about? Let's look at the rest of that before I jump the gun. As soon as the copy of the letter of King Artaxerxes was read to Rehum, Shemshai, the secretary, and the associates, they went to the Jews in Jerusalem and they compelled them by force to stop. Thus, work on the house of God in Jerusalem came to a standstill until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So a search of the archives was made. But what was he worried about? The answer was relatively simple. The royal interest. The fact that the king's interest was aroused, not because of Israel's plight, not because of their situation, but because of the possibility that he might face a rebellion and lose out on taxes and revenue. He was about to be hit in the royal wallet. He was happy with the status quo. As long as everyone got on, he was fine, no problem. So he wrote back to the governor and ordered them to stop work. And that's how things stood for the next 15 years, until the prophet Haggai remotivated them. Pretty much the same now, really. For the most part, today's authorities are pretty much the same. As long as everyone gets on with everyone else, not a problem. If it affects the status quo, different story. The exiles had returned from a land of compromise to a place where they could have unrestricted fellowship with God. 
But when they tried to build God's house, they immediately ran into opposition. How many of you have experienced the same sort of thing? As soon as you start getting serious with God, along comes your opposition. One or two of you smiling. Sometimes it isn't even direct opposition, just a distraction. Encouraging you to meet with him on your terms. But if you ever do it the proper way, it'll take too long, says the opposition. Compromise your standards. Things will be easier. You know how it goes. But the fact is that if God wants something to happen, it will happen. Perhaps not immediately. Perhaps 15 years later. But it will still happen. Perhaps not without opposition. But as your relationship with God grows, there is the possibility that others will become jealous of what you have with him. Perhaps non-Christians. Some people are frightened of this. Some people may be jealous. Some may even try to sabotage your relationship by putting temptation your way. But God is looking for a pure people. A people who are fully committed. A spotless bride, as scripture calls the church. A people who are not divided in their allegiances. Fully committed to him. These are the people who will face the possibility of opposition, but they will trust God in spite of what they see around them. That is what God is looking for. That is what we had, have, in this part of Ezra, the beginning of their return to their relationship with the Lord. The alternative is to be like the Samaritans, who gave lip service to God, but on their own terms, because the alternative was lions. So let me ask you, who do you choose to be? Do you choose to be someone building the temple of the Lord or a Samaritan?